passage is Matthew 7, verses 13 through 27. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who, bear, who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. If you have your Bibles, get them out. Open to Matthew 7, as you heard the newly doctored Simpson read earlier. We are this morning landing the plane on, uh, on the Sermon on the Mount. So my plan is to use roughly January through Easter every year, as long as it takes, to continue to work our way through uh, Matthew's gospel. Um, but today, we finish a Sermon on the Mount. That's where we're going to call it for this year. Pick back up next January. And I know some of you might be looking at this passage and thinking, Jim was really excited about finishing the Sermon on the Mount. He just took all these four different parts and shoved them together, and we're crash landing this. And I want you to know that as excited as I am to jump into Joshua next week, um, I, I would divide this up. I would preach this text whether, wherever it fell um, in the Gospel of Matthew, because I think that these are four, four little passages that we have tended to separate that Jesus really intended to, to go together. Because in this, you really see Jesus's sort of four-part conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has been talking about the kingdom of heaven. He's talked about what it is, how you enter the kingdom of heaven. He's told us how you conduct yourselves in the kingdom of heaven. He's instructed us in how we can uh, more effectively bring other people into the kingdom of heaven. And now in this passage, he's telling everybody who's listening, it's time to make a choice. You have to choose. Are you going to live in the kingdom of this world or are you going to live in the kingdom of heaven? That's what this passage is about, choosing. I remember uh, talking to my wife, Angela, it's been a few years ago now, about the, the Sermon on the Mount, and I'll never forget, she said, you know, it seems like Jesus, he's so nice in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, and he seems to really be kind of harsh at the end of it. And I started to think about it, and I, 
I think this would be, um, I think there would be a lot of people who would have the same kind of feeling, especially when you get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus feels like he's being harsh. And what I think is going on here, I think why most 21st century Americans would interpret Jesus as being harsh, is because Jesus communicates in a way that really slams into a lot of a lot of cultural values that we have as 21st century Americans, it hits us head on. Because Jesus is communicating in this passage in a very matter-of-fact way, in a very black, black and white way. And we live in a culture that wants to communicate in a very gray way, in a very indecisive way. Jesus comes and he gives us two choices. One's right and one's wrong. And he tells us to choose. Our culture, what do we want? We want 10 choices, and we want the right to be right no matter what we choose. Jesus is handing us a fixed menu, and we want to create this a la carte spirituality. Jesus is deconstructing Jewish culture, and he's reconstructing a biblical worldview. Our culture, we just want to deconstruct and be done with it. That's what we want to do. So it's helpful that we're cognizant of all the ways that our, our cultural wiring, it affects the way that, that we think about everything, and especially when it makes us think, Jesus doesn't sound right. <laughs> Jesus sounds off. Jesus sounds harsh. It's helpful to know that, that the w- way that we have been raised in this culture, it affects the way that we hear these words. But Jesus is presenting us with two options. And, and he kind of does it in four different ways. He presents us with two gates. He presents us with two trees. He presents us with two pleas. And then he presents us with two foundations. So you have these four contrasting pairs and Jesus is saying, choose. And so I'm gonna kind of go along with Jesus's outline. And, and what we're gonna do this morning is look at this passage and we are going, I want us to see that if we are going to make the right choice, that we're going to need to choose the right path, the right teacher, the right relationship, and the right foundation. That's what I think Jesus is doing with this passage, so that's what we're going to be doing this morning. So let's start with the right gate. We need to choose the right gate or the right path. I think Jesus is really communicating the same thing by using both of these words. Let's look at Matthew seven thirteen and 14. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So in the ancient world, you would have had around every city a very large wall, right? To protect it. And, but to get it, you still had to get in the city. So every city would have a large gate And we know a lot about these large gates because many of them still exist today in various parts of the ancient world. And we see that not only are these gates very large, they can be very ornate. They were designed to communicate something about the grandeur of the kingdom that lies behind that gate. It would have been designed to be enticing in some way. But if you follow the wall around a little bit, often to the right, you would have had a smaller gate. I've seen some of these gates. They're, they're often narrow. They're, they're not as high. They're often not a straight shot. They can kind of curve through a very thick wall. They're used to bring in, uh, where the farmers would bring in livestock um, 
food, corn, other things from outside the city. It would have been kind of a smelly entrance because the livestock would have left, you know, their excrement on this path because of the curve in it. You didn't always know who was in there. It could feel unsafe. And so you had these two very small gates. So you can imagine there are these two gates, one large, one small. And you can imagine looking at the big gate, this big gate that's easy to walk through. It's ornate. It's not going to require any sacrifice, any risk. And you look at it and you see so many people you know walking through. And Jesus is saying that's the gate that leads to destruction. And then he points over here and you see this smaller gate, this gate that isn't as attractive. It isn't as appealing. It doesn't look safe. It doesn't look easy. People might talk about you if you go through that gate. And Jesus is saying that's the gate that leads to life. So he's contrasting these two entrances. And the question I think we need to ask ourselves is what are these gates? What is the difference between the large gate, the wide gate, and the narrow gate? And I would define the wide gate as the gate that says, I can do what I want with my life. I can choose my path. I know better than God. And I think in modern culture, one of the, one of the hallmarks of this wide gate kind of theology would be the phrase, but I don't think Jesus is the only way. Or Jesus can't be the only way. And this is something that has existed for, this is, this is a theology that's existed since Jesus has been here for sure. We know preceding Jesus in certain parts of the world. But about 150 years ago, we had a rise of enlightenment, enlightened European scholars who would begin to flesh out this, what I call wide gate theology even more. And they would say things like, well, yes, there's a God, and but he's not exclusive. He, you can imagine him sitting on top of a mountain and there are multiple paths that, that go up to the top of the mountain and each path represents a different religion, but they all ultimately arrive at God. And, and what Jesus is saying, he, he would affirm that yes, all paths ultimately arrive at God. <laughs> but most of these paths will bring us to a God who is holy, perfect, righteous, in all of our sin. And that path will not go well. But what Jesus is saying is there's only one path that goes to God and presents us pure and blameless in a way where we will not receive any wrath from that God, but eternal love and compassion and mercy and grace. That's wide gate theology. Another Another example of wide gate theology is another old analogy. I think many of you have probably heard. It'd be, they, they would say, you know, God is like an elephant. And you have all these, these different blind people feeling the elephant, feeling different parts of the elephant. And so whoever's feeling the tail is going to describe God like the tail. And whoever's feeling the trunk is going to de- describe God like the trunk. Whoever's on the side is going to describe God as a big, you know, flat leathery wall. And so what these enlightened scholars would say is the problem is we're all describing one God from different points of view. There really are many paths to the same God. And you know, of course the big hole in this, in, in this explanation of, of God is that it pridefully assumes that these enlightened people are the only ones who see everything. Everybody's blindfolded, but not these people. They see everything for the way that it is. 
and they're able to say, look, it's, it's really one elephant. How is it that they're able to see everything and nobody else can? Because what the Bible says is that, yes, we are all kind of blindly feeling, and, and because of God has made himself known in very different ways, we are kind of blindly feeling and understanding things differently about creation, But the reason that we can come as Christians and say, we know what's going on is because Jesus in this text is saying, it's an elephant. He's telling us, in essence, he's the elephant. He's God. He's the way. Widegate theology wants to say there's all kinds of different ways. We can't really know. You know, we're going to... We're going to strive to live the best life that we can, do more good than bad, however in the world you figure that out. You know, live live true to yourself, trust your gut. These kinds of things are what wide-gate theology wants us to embrace. I had a, a seminary class, it was a really interesting seminary class, that required us to do a project on a mainline downtown church. And the assumption was that they have kind of strayed into this wide gate theology. And so we had to look on their website for certain cues of things that they believe, but they were kind of trying to hide. And then uh, we had to engage the pastor. And one of the questions I asked the pastor was, do you believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven? The only way to be reconciled with God? And the pastor looked at me and he said, well, I'm reformed, so I believe in a big enough view of God to allow for other ways to Jesus, other ways to God outside of Jesus. And I thought, well, that's really interesting because no reformer has ever held that position before. But wide gate theology wants us, wants us to embrace a view of God that says, you know, really all, whatever you want to do, all these paths lead to the same God. Nobody can really know for certain, but Jesus is telling us in the text, yes, we can. We can know for certain. That's what narrowgate theology is. Narrowgate on theology, on the other hand, says it will be hard. There will be sacrifices. And as Jesus speaks, you kind of get the impression that he, he knows all the critiques that are going to be leveled against him for the next 2,000 years. You know, it's hard. I will be unpopular at school. If I follow Jesus, I won't be accepted by the social circles that I want to be accepted in. The ethical requirements are so rigorous. Yes, that is true. That's why the narrow gate is difficult. But it is only this gate that leads to life. Jesus wants that to be abundantly clear. The old King James Version said, straight is the gate. And it's spelled S-T-R-A-I-T. All right? So that's not S-T-R-A-I-G-H-T. S-T-R-A-I-T, straight, as in straitjacket. That word the King James picked is meant to communicate confined, narrow, Because those of us who walk through that narrow gate, we have to walk through alone. We can't take anything with us. It will be difficult. It can be scary. But once we pass through that gate and we see the grandeur of the kingdom that it gives us entrance to, we're going to instantly forget every bit of inconvenience that that gate ever gave us. And I was thinking this week about how this kind of logic <laughs> that Jesus is using, we would embrace in every other area of our life. You know, we would always say, 
generally the easy path where you just get to do whatever you want to do isn't the one that's going to be profitable. You know, if, if you really want a certain scholarship, you don't say, well, I really want that scholarship, but you know, just as long as I can party every weekend and I don't have to read a lot. <laughs> you know, if you want your marriage to really thrive, you don't say, I want a great marriage, but just you know, as long as I don't have to put her needs ahead of my needs, that would be really inconvenient. You know, or if you, want to, if you want to excel as an athlete, you don't say, I want to go professional in my sport, but just as long as I can eat whatever I want to eat, sleep in and stay caught up on Netflix. You know, that, we don't have this a la carte approach to any other area of the things that we're really seeking after. So why would we all of a sudden apply it here? So if you were, I'm guessing, if you're 10 years older than me or 10 years younger than me, I think there's a 20 year window here and you were sick, and you had to stay home from school, and you were allowed to watch TV, I'm guessing there's one show that all of us would watch. Yes, The Price is Right. Uh, The Price is Right. All of us would watch that show, and they had a game on The Price is Right that had three doors. You had door one, door two, and door three, and the game was, you know, one door has a great prize, like a vacation or a car. One door has maybe an appliance, like a washing machine. And then the third door, you get a box of macaroni and cheese. And so you just had to blindly guess which door. Everybody's screaming what door that they should pick. And what Jesus is saying is our approach to the kingdom of God is not like the price is right, where we're blindly guessing a gate. Jesus is standing there and he's saying in the clearest possible terms, it's door two. It's the narrow gate. That is the way that you get into the kingdom of God. He cares about us so abundantly that he wants it to be abundantly clear. The narrow gate leads to life. The wide gate leads to destruction. These are the only two gates. You have one gate that calls to you like a siren and just as a siren does will bring you to destruction and another gate that calls you to humility. But that gate leads to eternal life. That's the first part of what Jesus is saying. And then the second part of what Jesus is saying is watch out for teachers who are gonna tell you that the wide gate is the right gate. That's the second part, the right teacher. Look at verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So we have among the Christian church, wolves in sheep's clothing. Wolves who look like sheeps, that sheep, not sheeps, sheep. They smell like sheep. They talk like sheep. They might be nicer than real sheep. They might be, you know, better read than real sheep. But these wolves have claws and fangs that they will hide from you until it is too late. So the question Jesus wants us to be able to answer is if we have wolves among us who are disguised as sheep, who are teaching wide gate theology, how is it that we're able to identify them? Verses 16 through 20. You will recognize them by their fruit. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. So we have another agricultural 
analogy here. I feel like the past three weeks we've had agricultural analogies that we city folk have tried to have had to, had to learn what it meant back in that day. But the question is, how do we identify good fruit from bad fruit? You know, you just go to Trader Joe's or Walmart. You don't have to discern between good fruit and bad fruit. People who lived, you know, a more agricultural life, they had to be able to know what is a good fruit, what is a bad fruit. And so I, I don't, I've heard, this is not mine. I don't know where I heard it. I heard it years ago. But there is the look test and the taste test. All right, that's how you discern good fruit and bad fruit. And that is what Jesus is telling us that we need to do if we're going to be able to discern is this a sheep or is this a wolf so first the look test this test is becoming so much clearer to me and so much more helpful the longer I go the look test is very simple does the life of the teacher match his teaching does the life of the teacher match his teaching I mean because we have teachers who who maybe from the pulpit teach good stuff. But in their lives, they're communicating that they don't really believe the things that they're teaching. You know, these may be people who mishandle church money, who lead their people in a very harsh and heavy-handed way. These are people who stretch church numbers and, and there's a lot about their online presence that I think we can, we can see their lives don't add up with their teaching. I have a whole list of people that I, I see right now out there who I think are wolves in sheep's clothing because they don't pass this test. I'm not going to name their names, but the look test is so essential because there, is, there are berries out there in the forest that, that can look attractive, but when we eat them, they will kill us Hunger Games style because we don't know how to apply this look test. It doesn't matter if somebody who's teaching you has read a lot of books. It doesn't matter if they have book deals themselves. It doesn't matter if they have a large congregation and a large budget. It doesn't matter if they have a blue check mark by their name. If their life doesn't add up to the teaching that they're giving, they do not pass the look test. And as a caveat, I also want to say that fruit has nothing to do with personal fulfillment and satisfaction in in a worldly kind of way because we have friends you know we have christian friends so yeah their their theology it smells a little off it smells a little funny but gosh they take great vacations (laughs) you look at their car and their cars in their house and their kids are really cool and their life looks really attractive and I i know they're off on a few things but maybe their gate is the right gate And Jesus is warning us, whoever those teachers are, whether it's from the pulpit or in your homes, that we need to be able to identify them if their lives don't pass the look test. Secondly, the taste test. Is the fruit good? Is it nourishing? And we have to remember with the taste test that none of these wolves are going to come out. They're not going to say, don't follow Jesus. <laughs> no wolf is going to say that if they want to be disguised as a sheep. You know, what they're going to say is you can have Jesus and the wide gate. That's what they're going to want to say. So we need to ask ourselves, is their fruit working? Is it nourishing us? Is it strengthening us? Are we being more and more conformed into the image of God because of the teaching that we're receiving? 
Is God becoming more appealing and attractive to the teaching of whoever it is that's influencing you? Is the wide gate becoming less and less appealing and the narrow gate being more and more appealing? If the answer is yes to all those things, then they pass the taste test. So this is how Jesus is addressing outsiders, pretending to be insiders. But then thirdly, he does something very different. He addresses insiders who think they're in, but they're really not. So this is the right relationship. And I think this is probably the scariest passage of scripture to me. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. These are heavy words, but they're heavy because Jesus so wants us to make the right choice that he would say even to those who think they're walking through the narrow gate, examine yourselves. See if the narrow gate is really the gate that you're walking through. And the implication is that there could be people in this room who think they're walking through the narrow gate, but they're walking through the wide gate. People who think that once through that gate, there is a warm welcome, a well done, my good and faithful servant, only to receive, depart depart from me, I never knew you. Tim Keller, about this passage, he, he says it sounds harsh because Jesus cares about us. He describes it as the difference between, you know, saying on a Sunday morning, someone's car is being towed right now versus many cars are being towed right now, all right? And the first, the first way of communicating that, it, it would, it, we would be very, it would be very likely for us to think that's probably someone else. But the second way of communicating, many cars are being towed right now, is more likely to cause us to examine our own car. And so what Jesus is wanting to do is wanting to push everyone to examine themselves. Are we entering in by the narrow gate? Because on that day, for these types of people, it won't matter what we did. People will walk through and say, I was going to church. I gave money to church. I didn't have sex until I was married. I knew reformed theology. I did everything I knew I could do. How in the world is this possible? And and these people, by all accounts, they had orthodox professions of faith. They were public professions of faith. It seems like some of them, some of these professions were accompanied with some sort of demonstration of power. And Jesus seems to be saying to these people, yes, all that is true, but all those good things that you were doing, at the end of the day, who were you doing it for? That's the real question. All the good works in the world are useless if we are not known by Jesus. Because this is the test. He doesn't say, depart from me, you didn't do the things that you were supposed to. He doesn't say, depart from me, you didn't go to church enough. Depart from me, you weren't moral enough. 
He says, depart from me, I never knew you. So the emphasis is on Jesus knowing us. And you know, I can remember years growing up hearing people say, I know Jesus. I have a relationship with Jesus. And I didn't understand what that meant. It just sounded really weird to have a relationship with somebody, to know somebody who you can't see. And so what does it mean? It's really important that we're able to understand what does it mean to be known by Jesus? Well, I think about, you know, most of us have been in stages of life where we might feel like nobody gets me. Nobody here understands me. Yeah, Angela and I have moved a number of times and, and every move we, we enter a new season of feeling like we're not as known and as understood as we were in the place that we came from. She has this great saying, it's really hard to make old friends. <laughs> when we say things like this, nobody knows me. Nobody understands me, nobody gets me. We're getting to the core of what it means to be known because there is this sure formula for life-giving relationships. Life-giving relationships are relationships where we are known the good, the bad, and the ugly and accepted and loved. The more a relationship, the more a friend knows us and loves us, the more life-giving that relationship is going to be. And when we have those kinds of relationships, it gives us a very small glimpse into what it is like to be known by Jesus. And I say a very small glimpse because I don't care how good your friend is, how perceptive your friend is, your friend is never gonna know everything about you. No one is gonna know the, the heights of your aspirations, the magnitude of your fears, your hopes, your losses, your insecurities. No one's going to know all those things, but Jesus does. And no one is going to forgive everything you do. No one has the depths and the capacities of love and forgiveness the way that Jesus Christ does. So the best friend in the world is a small, meager glimpse of what it means to be known by Jesus Christ. And we are, when we are known by Jesus Christ, it isn't just a life-giving relationship It's eternal life. And this is where we get to the heart of the Christian faith. It isn't a set of to-dos. It's a relationship. It's being known. Being known by Jesus Christ, our Lord. And the reason that we can't have this kind of relationship on our own is because sin separates us from us and God. And what Jesus did, if you want to take it in the context of this passage, Jesus, he took away that barrier from us by walking through the narrow gate first. So the narrow gate, at the end of the narrow gate, death was waiting for all of us, but Jesus went first. Jesus went first. He took on death. He removed death. And that's the only reason now that that narrow gate is safe. The only reason that narrow gate leads to the kingdom of God is because Jesus has disarmed death. He has removed sin as this barrier between us and God the Father and made a way into the kingdom. But that happens only through a relationship with him. So Jesus wants us to make a choice. He wants us to be sure that we have made the right choice. And then finally, he gives us this little test, a test to see if we really have the right relationship. And he does this through the analogy of the right foundation. How do you know 
if you are known by Jesus or not. Generally speaking, the trials in your life will reveal that. Look at verses 24 and 25. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. So in ancient Israel, they were very, they were, they was very dry, but prone to flash floods. And so when you built a house on the ground, you, you know, the sand, it was very hard when it was dry. And so the sand looked like a firm foundation. It looked fine. And so some people, you could build a house on the sand, or you could dig down five, eight, ten feet to the bedrock. It's a little extra work, but you could build your house there. And I think everybody who Jesus is talking to would have fully connected with what he was saying. The two houses, they look identical. They both look firm. They both look steady. But one has a fatal flaw in the foundation and that isn't revealed until the storm comes, until the flash floods come. And you have one house that crumbles and one house that stays. All of us are going to have storms. All of us are gonna have trials and that's gonna reveal the foundation that we're building on. It's going to reveal the relationship that we really have. It's going to reveal the kind of teacher we're listening to. It's going to reveal the gate that we're walking through. So, what is that foundation? Because, I mean, if there's a good foundation, there's a bad foundation. We want to be sure we're building on the good foundation. And I think all of us would be tempted, especially if you grew up singing a certain song in Sunday school, to say, Jesus, Jesus is the foundation. And and certainly in other passages, Jesus is the foundation, but that's not what he's saying here. If you notice in your text, Jesus doesn't say Jesus is the foundation. He says that his teachings are the foundation. There's a big difference, okay? And the difference is this. Jesus is only of value to you if you do what he says. You can know all about Jesus, but if you don't do what he says, Jesus is of no value to you. So what is it that Jesus is teaching? How is it that we can be like like the wise man who hears the teaching of Jesus and does them? Well, the command is simple. The command is come. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's the command. That's what it means to build your house on a good foundation, to come to Jesus. Uh, I think it's probably about three years ago now, I was at a hotel restaurant and I was talking with my waitress who was a good bit older than, than I was. And she knew that I was there for a marriage conference and she said, I just wanted to let you know that last week, my husband and I celebrated 40 years of marriage and we renewed our vows to each other. And I said, well, that, that's great. Congratulations. What, what was it like to renew your vows 40 years later? And she looked at me and she said, well, this time I knew what in the world I was getting into. <laughs> And you know, what she was communicating is in the beginning when she first took those vows, she was making the best decision she knew to make with the, the limited information she had and the, you know, raging emotions and affections she had. But 40 years later, she knew this man. 
She knew this man and she knew she wanted to be with this man. She had seen him love her and serve her and pursue her through all the trials of life. And I think that's very similar to what Jesus is communicating to us. The more these storms come, the more we're able to see Jesus hold on to us and love us and minister to us, the more sure we're going to be that we are building on the right foundation, that we have the right relationship and that we are walking through the right gate. That is the test. So I want to finish by drawing our attention to one word, everyone. Three times in this passage, Jesus says everyone. Twice he says everyone who hears these words of mine, everybody. There is this universal command Jesus is giving here. Nobody gets a free pass. Everyone has to hear these words. Everyone has to abide by these words. Everyone is going to stand in front of God one day and have to account for the gate that they walked through. If you walk through the wide gate, then we're going to have to stand before God on our own merits and justify our own way of coming into the kingdom. That's not gonna go well for anyone. But for everyone who enters the narrow gate is saying that I know I can't do anything. I know I haven't earned it. So I want to be judged not on my merits, but by the merits of Jesus Christ. Everyone has to make this decision. Everyone has to go through by themselves. They can't take anything with them. Everyone will stand accountable. And I know this is a a serious way to finish this sermon, but this is exactly how Jesus is finishing his sermon. So we need to look at this passage and consider which gate we are going through because everyone will have to account for that decision in this life. Let's pray. God, we come to you so grateful that this life is not one big game of the price is right, but you are standing here showing us as clearly as you possibly can, this is the way. And we, we see and we acknowledge that that way is Jesus Christ. And we pray that this morning, all of us, whether we have been walking faithfully with you for decades or whether we are just now for the first time considering what path we're on, I pray that you would make the narrow gate beautiful, that you would draw our hearts and our minds and our actions to the narrow gate and that the large gate that we see so many people walk through, that it would have no sway on us. It would have no pull on us because we have a relationship with you and every trial that comes our way ensures more deeply that you are trustworthy, you are good, and you will finish the work that you have started. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.